Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Today's episode is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services via the historypodcasters.com network. If, like me, sometimes you'd like to add a visual element to your historical narrative, but you lack the time or skill to make them yourself, then why not try and find an experienced cartographer who shares your passion for the past? Leatherman Data Services provide mapping and geographic data services for historians, archaeologists and others. They aim to provide high-quality products for the people who care about history just as much as we do. You can contact them at leathermandataservices at gmail.com or visit the website leathermandataservices.com. So, on with today's episode. Chapter 62, The First Emperor. There was a new Caesar in town. Octavian and his forces had defeated Mark Antony and taken control of Egypt. Once Antony had been defeated, Octavian and Agrippa decided they didn't need such a large army and kept only 28 of the original 60 legions. The rest of the soldiers were sent home to resume their lives in their home provinces. The young man was the most powerful man in the Roman world and some historians date the Imperial Roman times from 30 BC when he achieved this victory. Some date it from 27 when he was given the title Augustus. In reality though, the fiction of the Republic was still very much in place and for Octavian to keep power, the fiction of the Republic had to be preserved. It didn't matter how much of a lie it really was, it was important to the senators and people of Rome and must be kept going. So Octavian needed legal backing for his rule and where was he going to get it? How was he going to get the permission to make the Senate almost irrelevant? Well, he was going to go to the Senate, of course. It seems amazing, given the benefit of hindsight, that the senators could be duped into relieving themselves of power, but in effect, that's what they did. In 29 BC, Octavian was elected consul for the fifth time, and on January the 1st of that year, everything else he had previously done was ratified. That is, everything was agreed to in retrospect by the Senate. Octavian remained in the east while this happened, sorting out his eastern provinces. Later that year, he returned to Rome and celebrated a triumph, although he was careful to celebrate the victories over foreign enemies like Cleopatra than those over fellow Romans like Antony. In 28, he was elected to his sixth consulship, along with his very useful best mate, Marcus Agrippa. Octavian and Agrippa spent the year systematically altering the makeup of the Senate, promoting their own men and kicking out opponents. There was still a property requirement for senators, they had to have a certain amount of wealth. Octavian got over this. If he felt that a man was worthy of the Senate, he simply gave him the necessary wealth. Octavian was made leader of the Senate and given the title Princeps, meaning first citizen. This was a prestigious but not permanent or all-powerful title. In the end, though, it was one of the titles that the emperors held on to for centuries as an imperial title. In 27 BC, Octavian pretended to the Senate they were still in charge, but played a masterstroke. He had them declare him leader of the Roman world for ten years. He made a great speech, where effectively he handed power back to the Senate, and then they gave it straight back to him. It was agreed that Octavian would govern the key provinces of Gaul, Egypt, Spain, Syria, Cyprus and Cilicia. The remaining provinces would be governed by the Senate. In Octavian's provinces, he got to appoint a governor of his own choosing. All of Octavian's provinces, with the exception of Egypt, were border provinces with foreign enemies on the doorstep. This meant that Octavian was in command of a huge percentage of the army, and thus, in reality, 
control of all Roman territory. Egypt contributed much of the grain supply for Rome itself, so Octavian was also in charge of the food. Having control of the army and the food made Octavian untouchable. Senatorial provinces were governed by proconsuls appointed by the Senate. The fiction of joint control seemed to satisfy everyone, and Rome settled down to its new form of government while pretending the Republic was still alive and well. The Senate lauded Octavian, and one of their number suggested he should be known as Caesar Augustus. This, of course, is the name by which he is known today, Augustus Caesar, first emperor of Rome. The title didn't confer any extra powers on Augustus, but it sure sounded good. More honours were loaded upon him, but he took care to refuse some. He refused to be named dictator, on the grounds there wasn't a crisis, so a dictator wasn't necessary. In this way, he proved himself to be even more politically skilled than Julius Caesar. Augustus knew where to draw the line. He knew how to obtain total power without seeming to have it. Destroyer of the Republic, number 10, Augustus Caesar, really had put the final nails in the coffin of that ancient institution. Augustus's rule, though, did not remain completely unchallenged. Men thought they could do what Crassus, Pompey and others had done. They thought they could have a big military success and then be lauded and given power. They thought they could work the rules of the Republic just as their predecessors had done. But they were wrong. The Republic was dead. Augustus's grip on power was complete, even if it was hidden just below the surface. The age of the self-made man grabbing power was over. The first man to try was Marcus Licinius Crassus, grandson of his namesake who was part of the first triumvirate. He won some battles in Moesia and killed the enemy leader himself. He claimed the title Imperator. Now, this didn't mean emperor as it later came to. It was a title given to glorious commanders which they held until they celebrated a triumph for their success. He was allowed a triumph by Augustus, but he was denied some of the other honours which may have made him too powerful, including Imperator. After this time, though, triumphs were only awarded to members of Augustus's own family. In 23 BC, Augustus became seriously ill and was not expected to survive. He had already been thinking about what would happen when he died. He was determined he would not let power go outside his family, so he looked within it for a successor. He wanted his nephew Marcellus to become leader of the Roman world when he was gone, and had been giving him the experience he would need to take over and become a good leader. When he became ill though, Augustus knew Marcellus was not old or experienced enough to take over, so he turned to his best friend Marcus Agrippa and named him his successor. Augustus recovered. Marcellus though was not so lucky and died in 23. Augustus then adopted Agrippa as his son and Agrippa married his daughter, Julia. Thus, in the princeps' mind, the succession was assured. And Augustus's own rule was secure. By 23, he had been given full tribunician power. This gave him power over everyone. Only Agrippa was given similar powers. With this power, Augustus had the legal right to veto any proposal put forward by anybody. His power was greater than that of the other tribunes, though. They were not allowed to veto him. This meant that Augustus did not have to be consul in order to wield absolute power. Thus, he didn't stand for the consulship very often after this time. All this served to keep in place the lie of the Republic. How could Augustus be trampling on the rules of the Republic if he wasn't consul? Augustus Caesar changed everything in Rome. 
he carried out a spectacular building programme, or rather he got Marcus Agrippa to do it. The city was beautified and the water and sewage systems were improved. Augustus continued the building of the famous Roman roads throughout the empire. This meant that if there was a problem or an invasion near the borders, the emperor could find out about it quickly and send troops to fight the invaders more easily. There were, of course, no telephones or any other form of communication in the ancient world, so good roads were very important. He also formed a group of guards that were to protect him and only him. This famous and infamous body of men were called the Praetorian Guard, and they will play a huge part in our story. Augustus reformed the senatorial rules. The number of senators was reduced to 600, and the requirement was increased so that only the most wealthy men could hope to obtain the office. After a time, the path up the cursus honorum was formalised once more. Senators would serve as quaestors, aediles, and then praetors. They were generally not eligible to become consuls until they were around 33. Ex-praetors would often become governors of an imperial province, one controlled by Augustus. Ex-consuls would often end up governing senatorial provinces. In both cases, though, the man would have to be trusted by Augustus. Nobody could be appointed to the key governing roles without his agreement. The equestrian order also did well under Augustus. The emperor, and that is what we will now call him, recognised the important strategic value of Egypt, particularly with regard to the food supply. He, and later emperors, banned senators from even going there. The commanders of the legions and the governors, called prefects, were always equestrians. Other prefectures were later created. The common people of Rome benefited in many ways from this new form of government. The food supply was secured and a whole infrastructure put in place to ensure that it never failed. 200,000 of the poorest people were allocated free grain. Augustus also laid on lavish and fantastic entertainments. Gladiatorial contests, sports festivals, the theatre, all were well supported by Augustus and his government. In 17 BC, Augustus threw a huge celebration called the Secular Games. These were only supposed to happen every hundred years or so, and so represented the beginning of a new era. The theory was that no person should ever see two Secular Games. In some ways, Augustus was a very conservative man. He decided that the moral fibre of the Roman people was lacking. It was time, he thought, to regulate the religious and moral behaviour of the people. He increased the cults and festivals, ensuring, of course, that his own family were mentioned in the prayers. His building programme included a lot of temples, including Agrippa's most lasting monument, the Pantheon. This magnificent building still stands in Rome today, although today's version is an almost complete rebuild of Agrippa's original, erected by Hadrian in the mid-2nd century AD. Augustus's other reforms went a lot further than his religious ones. Using the hated Mark Antony as an example, Augustus imposed correct behaviour on Roman society. In 18 BC, a law was passed making adultery a crime, punishable potentially by death. If a father caught his daughter in the act, then he could legally kill her and then the man she was with, although he wasn't allowed to kill the man if he didn't kill his daughter first. As usual in the ancient world, it was the woman who suffered most. If a husband caught his wife committing adultery, then he had to divorce her within 60 days. If a man committed adultery with a slave, then he was not punished at all. Again, one rule for men and another for women. Many of the other potential punishments were equally draconian. 
Many of the punishments were, though, not often carried out, and existed more in theory than in practice. Augustus also gave tax breaks and other incentives to those families who had a lot of children. The civil wars and other conflicts had reduced the population and repopulating was high on Augustus's agenda. Unmarried and childless people had their rights to inherit property reduced. People with three children or more were heavily advantaged. In 13 BC, the third member of the Second Triumvirate, the forgotten Marcus Lepidus, finally died. He had lived in relative obscurity for many years, although Augustus had let him keep the title Pontifex Maximus, the leader of the priests of the Pantheon of the Gods. Augustus then took the title for himself, as did every emperor for the next 400 years. Imperial propaganda ensured that Augustus was seen as a great ruler and something akin to a god. It helped that Julius Caesar had been deified so he could present himself as the son of a god. Coins always showed him as youthful and powerful, even when he had become an old man. Augustus employed writers to celebrate Rome's past and, by implication, its glorious present. The army benefited hugely from Augustus's time in office. He and Agrippa set about stationing permanent army units in the border provinces, most, as we have heard, in the provinces controlled by Augustus himself. Each legion was given a number and a name. Pay and length of service were standardised so that becoming a soldier was a good career with a defined career path. At the end of their service, usually 16 years, the soldiers were given a pension of cash rather than land. The command structure of the legion was also formalised. The leader of a legion was called a legate and would be a senator. The second in command, usually a younger senator, was known as the Tribunus Laticlavius. The next most senior officer, the Prefectus Castrorum, or Prefect of the Camp, was a career soldier. Next were five equestrian officers, and below them, the centurions. A centurion would be the leader of about 80 men. No, not a hundred, as the name suggests. There were 60 centuries grouped into 10 cohorts. Each cohort contained six centuries, of 80 men, not a hundred. There was no cohort commander. The chain went straight from the equestrian tribunes to the centurions. All legionaries were Roman citizens, and during the first couple of hundred years of the empire, there seems to have been no shortage of these men to serve in the army. There were plenty of auxiliary troops who were not citizens, but these would tend to be recruited for a specific campaign and then sent home afterwards, although later they did become part of the standing army. Augustus Caesar took a good look at his empire and put some thought into the borders. He decided the size of the empire which he had helped to build would remain the same size as it was, there is only so much territory that can be ruled from a city on the Italian peninsula, either through direct control or having tame client kings on local thrones. Some of the client kingdoms on the edges of the empire would become full provinces during the reign of Claudius, and he would add one key new territory. But essentially, Augustus's borders lasted well over a century, until the great emperor Trajan went to conquering. In the east, the Parthian Empire, the Euphrates River and the Arabian Desert would see the limit of Roman lands. In the south, the great sandy desert, now called the Sahara, would be the border, and in the west, the Atlantic Ocean would be an obvious edge for the empire. In the north, things were different. Augustus thought the empire did not yet have the equivalent natural boundaries, and he decided the borders should be the Elbe and Danube rivers. Rivers, of course, are relatively easy to defend. The emperor's forces invaded some of the territories north of Greece, turning them into provinces, and forced others to become client kingdoms of Rome, 
even though the client kings were officially still independent. Many of the campaigns were led by Augustus's stepsons, Tiberius and Drusus, who we will meet properly in the next chapter. The frontier at the Danube was established quite easily. The frontier on the Elbe would be much more difficult. That meant taking land from some of the tribes in the wild country of Germania. In 7 AD, the Romans were ready to begin their final push to conquer Germania up to the Elbe, just as Augustus wanted. A German leader called Arminius was trusted by the Romans and was, so they thought, helping them in their preparations. Secretly, though, he was working against Rome. The regional Roman armies were led by an unfortunate senator called Publius Quintilius Varus. In 9 AD, Arminius set up a trap for Varus. He told him a revolt had broken out near the camp and that it would be sensible for Varus to put it down right now, no messing about. Varus trusted Arminius and moved his armies into a large woodland known as the Tudorburg Forest. The Roman leader marched in with his three legions down a heavy, muddy road into a narrow strip of land between a marsh and a hill. Here the Roman legions were attacked by forces loyal to Arminius and completely massacred. 20,000 Romans were killed. It was the worst defeat since Cannae. Varus committed suicide and only very few soldiers escaped. The flags carried by each legion, called legionary standards, were captured by the Germans, something totally unthinkable for the Romans. Augustus was appalled and very upset. He decided that the Rhine should be the northern border of the empire and completely abandoned the idea of reaching the Elbe. It is said that Augustus was so distressed by his losses in the Battle of the Tudorburg Forest that every now and then, without warning, he would shout out, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. He never really recovered. During the reign of Augustus, someone called Jesus was born in the province of Judea. Although the Romans didn't know it at the time, this birth and its consequences would have a big part to play in the story of Rome and its empire. When he was close to death, Augustus announced he had found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. He wanted to be remembered by history. He had reigned for over 40 years. No other emperor would reign this long for 400 years. He made a list of all the things he had done so that everyone would know just how great he was. In 14 AD, he finally died, aged 77. He had been unwell for long periods during his life and it's somewhat amazing he had been lucky enough to live that long. Many people see Augustus as Rome's best and most successful emperor. I'm not sure I agree. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. We'll carry on our story of the emperors of Rome and it's something that we can discuss a little later. But anyway, Augustus is dead. What could happen next? The Republic's dead, so who would rule now? As it happens, Augustus put a lot of thought into the succession. In the next chapter, we'll retrace our steps a little and look at the soap opera that comprises the machinations of Augustus's extended family. I will introduce you to the clan known as the Julio-Claudians. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.